This is LBC from Global, leading Britain's conversation with Tom Swarbrick. Evening to you, just gone midnight on Friday the 21st of... Don't know why I'm talking like this. Friday the 21st of January 2022. That's a bit, bit hard and fast for this time of night, wasn't it? A bit too much pace and energy. Shall I start again? The times they are a-changing. The fourth industrial revolution is upon us. The pace of change faster than at any time in the last few hundred years. AI, robotics, quantum computing are about to take your job, manage your health and possibly drive your car. Tony Blair said yesterday that governments across the world, but specifically here, lack a plan to deal with the consequences of this revolution, whether in healthcare or in clean energy. Tonight, we are live with a futurist, someone who sees the future and how best to make the most of it. If you want to get ahead of the curve, if you want to be so far ahead of the curve that it disappears, this is the session. Rohit Talwar is the chief executive of Fast Future, a company which looks at the development and future of technology and artificial intelligence. Wonderful to have you on the programme. Thank you for joining us, Rohit. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, what is a futurist? So our job is to help people think about the forces, the ideas, the developments that could shape the future and the ways in which they could combine into different scenarios. Businesses and governments to understand those things and then say, how do you make better choices today and how do you prepare for a range of possibilities mm. so that you're thinking about not just plan A, but plan B or C, I, I realise that's contentious language still, but you're thinking about a range of possibilities for the future and not just having hope as a strategy. So I, I don't know whether you caught sight of what Tony Blair had to say uh, a few hours ago this morning. Um, th through advances in medical science, the use of data, making systems properly interoper interoperable and AI, we can transform in healthcare the patient experience. Uh, there is a suggestion... Uh, that the NHS, if it used some of the technology uh, well through advances in medical science, the use of data. Um, Lord Darzai has estimated that the NHS could save £12.5 billion a year by use of AI in eliminating routine and administrative tasks alone. So those are the kinds of changes that if they can be brought in to managing big organisations like the NHS, could save money, time and make it better for the patients. Absolutely. There are all sorts of benefits that AI can bring to healthcare. I think the internal administrative costs are minuscule compared to better treatment, better understanding of what causes diseases, mm. people's behaviours and prescription uh, behaviour and starting to really manage those. I think we could save tens of billions if we got it right with there and AI can help it's it's not some magic uh, tool. We, we're starting to get into the realms of it being science fantasy and science mm -hmm. fiction. It, at its core, it's about taking very large volumes of data from past cases, interpreting that, and then, in a sense, the system predicting what would happen okay. in any particular case based on the past. So we can do a number of things with AI that start to transform our experience, whether it's in education, healthcare, road transport. The biggest challenge, the biggest challenge is getting a line to work, to be honest. And then working out the impacts. 
Now, listen, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to work on your line because uh, it's, it's not particularly good and we've got a bit of a problem on it, which means you've got a delay. But what I'm keen to get more of, a, of an understanding of is the things that are actually happening, the changes that are actually uh, that, that have actually happened, but is uh, are still yet to, to be implemented in a variety of different circumstances, the NHS being one of them, cars being another. I'll give you an example. So our car is is currently being serviced. And so I've got a, uh, one of those loan cars that they give you. And um, there there is to me now a question about who really is in charge of this vehicle, because not only can it set its own speed and judge the distance between me and the car in front to speed up or speed down, it, it's got this thing where if I slightly stray too close to the one side of the lane or the other, the steering wheel will be, be con controlled, taken out of my control, and I'll be steered back into the lane. So we're now in a position of trying to work out who is actually in charge of this vehicle. So uh, Rohit, if we, I hope we've got a better line to you. If you could, could you run us through the three areas where this technological advance is going to be seen very quickly and, um, and in a way that is going to be very revolutionary? I think the first is in the way government services get run. Uh, we'll see more and more government decision making being done by AI, more and more departments using AI, whether it's issuing licenses, issuing permits, all sorts of processes, benefits and things. Hmm. So that means that whole the whole area of financial yeah. services. No, this isn't going to work. Either. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so the person at the end of the line at the DVLA or the HMRC who's trying to deal with your tax complaint or worry about your driving license, um, then they're not going to be there anymore uh, if if it is the fact that... And so that is going to be one of the problems that inevitably happens as a result of this technological advance, that the jobs that are there now are not going to be there in the next five years. And you see actually a lot of uh, politicians, I, thought, I think Rory Stewart talked about this quite a lot, the fact that if the jobs are going because of technology, how are those jobs replaced and how are people trained in order to do jobs that are otherwise taken over by AI? Robert. Yeah, uh, well, there's a massive challenge there and I think uh, governments around the world are struggling with this in terms of what are those jobs of the future because we're going to be automating more and more. So one view is we have autonomous vehicles, will create a whole new industry of repairing autonomous vehicles. But actually the technology, the software in the car will repair itself. And there's a very good chance that not very long after we introduce autonomous vehicles, there'll be a robot in the back of the car that will come out and do any kind of repairs we need to. About the only part of the auto repair industry that will survive is, is the panel beating side after you have crashes. And once you've got all autonomous roads on the um, cars on the road, we won't even have crashes or we're unlikely to. So we really need to think very deeply about how this technology is more disruptive than anything we've seen in the past. Mm. And as it gets smarter and we get closer to what's called artificial general intelligence, where AI is as smart or smarter than us, it's very hard to see any industry where we won't have replaced most of the jobs we have today. The question is whether we'll have new industries, new types of jobs, no one knows. Mm. And we're not really investing in the kinds of skills that people will need to create their own jobs, to create their own businesses, to encourage creativity. Yeah. So there's a fundamental shift required in terms of how governments think about the future. And right now, obviously, there are so many crises surrounding not just our government in the UK, but worldwide. 
it's very hard to get anyone to do any kind of long-term thinking about this. Can you explain then what is artificial general intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence? And realistically, realistically, is there what is the the earliest point at which we're going to get to the stage of artificial general intelligence? So what we have today, people call artificial narrow intelligence, where we've got something that's super smart in one domain. So it might be um, doing mortgage processing applications. It might be diagnosing cancer patients. There's a whole range of these things going on now. You've got about 20 different AI apps in your phone. So predictive text, all those things are very good artificial narrow intelligence. The ultimate goal of the AI community is to create what's called artificial general intelligence, where the AI is as smart as humans in pretty much every domain. And because it continues to learn, it would very quickly become smarter than us, and you'd get to what's called artificial superintelligence. And that's really an interesting conundrum. In the AI community, there's a massive range of views. Some people say you'll never get it. Others say we'll have it within five years. The consensus seems to be about 20 to 40 years when it truly is as smart as as us. But within five years, we will be using tech that is smarter than 80% of us 80% of the time. My smartphone is already smarter than me in most of the things it does. Yeah, but there's, I, I just, I'm just interested in this notion of what smart means because my, my calculator on my phone is a lot smarter than me at working out calculations, much quicker than me at working out calculations, but, but I, I'm much smarter than it at doing practically anything else at all. So aren't we talking about the difference between being smart and being intelligent? Very kind of interesting uh, debate point there. But this is about saying in any situation, when you take all of the signals, so when we see, as you're walking down the street, we see a whole bunch of information things. We make choices about which windows to stop in, uh, what we're going to buy for our lunch or whatever. We're constantly making choices. And and you can call that intelligence. You can call that being smart. Once AI kicks in, it's as smart as us. It will not only be looking in the windows for us, but it will be recognizing that one of our friends is down the road. It will be picking out the best deals, finding where the the food is that we most like to eat. It will be checking the calorie count on that food Mm -hmm. to make sure uh, it's it's healthy for us. It will be checking if you're a diabetic, that there's nothing there that would would, uh, damage your health. It's going to be doing stuff that we couldn't possibly do with the volume of information we'd have to take in. But what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, the algorithms now that work on Facebook or Amazon or eBay tell me about the things that I, I might like based on my previous purchases in the same way that the artificial intelligence to come might be able to tell me what food I'm going to enjoy at this restaurant, which might give me the nutrients that I need in order to feel better that day. But why is it all geared around me? It feels very closed in and very boxed and very narcissistic. Is there a way in which the intelligence works that shows me a world that I wouldn't otherwise think about or contemplate? You're absolutely right. Most of the conversation about AI is about the impact on the person. And partly that's so that people can understand it better. And partly it's to try and wake up governments, businesses, and everyone involved to understand how, what a deep human impact it could have. Mm. Some of the biggest things that we could do, though, if we get AI right, 
would be to solve some of our biggest challenges. So how do we truly manage climate change across the planet? So we don't just have people saying they're buying carbon offsets, but actually if we look around the world, there's no one absorbing the carbon that we're, you know, the offset that we're buying. So how do we manage that better? Things like managing the global food supply chain. We know that something like one to two billion people in the world go hungry. We also know that 40% of the fresh food in the world is wasted. Now, AI wow, hang on, might 40% just... of the fresh food in the world is wasted? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, now, AI might take all that data, whether it's wasted uh, at the farm or anywhere in the supply chain, through to wasted in our homes. If AI had that data, it would be able to come up with much smarter ways of managing that so that we could not have that level of waste and maybe redirect a lot of it towards the people most in need it would it and you, you keep bringing this back to the personal inevitably we do but things like our economic and financial systems we know they're chaotic we know that's how people make a lot of money out of the volatility of markets but there's always losers ai might just come up with smarter models for how you run national economies and global mm. economies so that you don't get the crises we have and you end up with with countries on the verge of collapse or in collapse it might provide a better way of doing conflict resolution we've been writing about this recently where we're seeing ai doing legal dispute resolution in china they have internet courts where there's no human involved in the case what? and and 98 go through without any appeal uh, in estonia even has it for financial claims under seven thousand euros so we're starting to see ai being used in those kind of areas we could scale it up maybe one day to use AI in conflict resolution between nations. We could use it in all sorts of ways that really do benefit humanity, but they're relatively boring to most people. Whereas talking about AI in a dating app and how it will help you find your perfect match, and when you're on the, your date, actually the AI telling you things in your ear mm. Uh, that you could say in the conversation and knowing that those will be good things to say because it's talked oh to the other person's God. AI. That's the sort of stuff that people get interested in and either hate the idea or love the idea, but it perks up their yeah. attention. Right. It's it, it, totally fascinating. I want to I want to ask you more about Internet courts in just a moment because I find that astonishing. 03456060973 is the number for the session. Well, it's the number for the station. 84850 to text. You can tweet at LBC. I, the, point, the whole point of this is that you get involved. So I, this isn't a podcast interview where you just sit back and listen. If you want to make a point, if you want to jump in, if you want to ask a question, now's your chance. This is LBC with Tom Swarbrick. Call 0345 6060 Tweet at LBC. Text 84850. I sometimes think that all these discussions about artificial intelligence, artificial superintelligence, um, quantum computing, it's all like, woo, it sounds exciting and sparkly and spangly, and, but it always feels like it's somewhere over there, like it's not quite here yet. We're sort of waiting for it to happen. But what Rohit has just told us about internet courts in China and other things, I, I, I'm very keen to try and impress upon people that it is here right now and managing how we use it is absolutely critical to its and our success. Rohit Tower is Chief Executive of Fast Future. It's a company that looks at the development and future of technology and artificial intelligence. He's with us tonight on the session. Uh, more of you, uh, we'll do some texts and tweets. Cold Logic's box involved again, which is good to see. Meantime, Graham's in Staines. Graham. 
Hi, how are you? Thanks. Very interesting conversation. It's very interesting. Um, look, just on one of the comments that have just, just recently been made about things related to, say, waste management and AI coming into it and, you know, giving advice about what should be segregated. The, the issue is it's actually down to the producer to segregate their waste properly. That's a legal requirement. So how would the AI sort of determine what should go where if it does not have a physical or visible view of what items need to be disposed of. It, it, it's really great having AI, but there needs to be uh, a, a level where it, it, it's down to the individual choice, ultimately. I mean, what are we trying to get to? The point where AI decides everything for us? And, and puts everything into its individual silo, so we have no choice. Right. Or, you know, sorry, just no, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. Right, fire away. So, really good point, and we, I think, we have to separate a couple of things. But one is what the technology is capable of doing, and the technologists want to be set free to do things and come up with grand ideas. And then there's what we as society want and how we want to apply the technology and how we want the technology applied to us. And as you said before, Tom, if we don't understand it, if we don't understand how fast it's moving, if we don't understand its potential, then we're constantly going to be shocked and we're constantly going to be behind the game. So if you take the issue with food waste, if we can have uh, good tracking throughout the food supply chain, we can see where food gets wasted, exactly where, whether it's at the farm, whether it's in the shipper, whether it's in the warehouses on route, all those things. We start to better understand where the loss happens. And then you can start to say, well, okay, how do you manage that better? So AI crank crunching literally millions of data points can, would start to tell us and would start to find the patterns and compare really efficient food chains with really bad ones and start to give us insights and ideas. There are so many data points and so many food supply chains that humans just can't do that. So, but when you bring AI to bear, it could do that for us. And, and so we can see where there's value. In terms mm. of waste sorting, it's already happening. You've already got cameras mm -hmm. looking at the waste coming through and being able to identify all the different types of waste and then robotic arms picking out paper from tin cans or whatever. And again, it's doing stuff at, speed, at a speed and an efficiency and an accuracy that we just can't do with humans. So there are many, many applications where you can use it. Now, the question is, do we want to do that? Mm. Or do we still want humans in the loop doing those jobs? Well, that's that, uh, Graham, I wonder if that speaks to your point about it is still ultimately down to humans, whether it's whether it's a sort of hardware point about who picks out the stuff or actually more, I think, more more concerningly, the software point about how these things are programmed and what their aims are. If we get to the point, Rohit, where the algorithm can understand for itself and in that sense learn, will humans be able to control that degree of learning, where that learning ends? I, I don't think so, uh, because it's a bit of a black box. We don't really know what's going on inside these algorithms yet. They, That's they're so working mad. Away. We've created it and just set it off, and it whirs away in the background. We could do, we, but that would require us to put almost a legal requirement on the developers to say every time 
something happens inside this big neural network inside the AI box, we want to know what's happened and we yeah. want to be able to record everything, which would be millions of lines of code. And you would need AI to read that and tell you what happened. There's no way a human could look at all that and work out even the simplest thing of how it came up with that mortgage decision. We, but we can just test it on thousands of past cases. And if it comes up with the same answer, then we believe that it's right. And so it's, we, we're, we're coming up with not just uh, technological choices, we're coming up with social, economic choices. And we're not ready for them because we don't understand it enough. If you look at somewhere like Singapore, there's a massive push to get the citizens understanding a whole range of technologies. The Finnish government has created a six-module online training program that's accessible for, for free for all Finnish citizens to teach them about AI because what they don't want is fact-free debate. They don't want mm. people talking about it without knowing what they're talking about. And the only way you can have an informed decision, a discussion, is if you learn something about it. I think that's where one of the biggest failings in the government's AI strategy is. They published a, a gazillion-page report a few months ago, and it only really talked about artificial narrow, narrow intelligence, and it said almost nothing yeah. about educating the population or preparing yeah. the population for what's coming. And Blair talks about that too. I, I, I'm going to come to Cold Logic's box question in just a moment, but Rohit, and I realise this is a bit down a pathway, but I've, I've read a bit about something called GPT-3. Right. Um, uh, do, you, do you know about what this is? Yeah, so there's a, there's a bunch of these. Amazon have theirs, Google has theirs, there's GPT-3. Uh, there's a variety of these tools which uh, are, are just getting smarter and smarter at doing the AI processing yeah. and getting closer to what you might call artificial general intelligence. And this is, I understand uh, it, is, a, is a, an algorithm which takes every single word that's ever been typed or placed on the internet, uh, like, curates all of it, and you can ask the algorithm to write you an article on the, uh, you know, the, the financing of the Trident nuclear weapons system, and it will write you an article some and you can also get it to write it in the style of a particular person if you like and it will do it and it will be it will be more than passable yeah and, and but we've had tools that can do article writing for about 10 years now a huge amount of the content you see on news sites on the web is generated by ai yes gpt3 could be used for that but that would be a relatively trivial application that would be like having a ferrari and only using it to drive to the corner shop. So what's, its, what's the outer limit of what it can do? It's evolving so fast. The speed of which it can process information, it can come up with the inferences. It, it could literally be used for discovering new drugs, uh, creating new financial systems or models of new financial systems. It, the power of it is growing, and, and these tools are growing. They're not quite as smart as humans yet mm -hmm. in every domain, but they're certainly smarter than us in a number. And so there are, there are a range of these tools that can just process yeah. a huge mass of information. So if you look in China, they have this social scoring system yeah. that is measuring you on all sorts of behaviors, what you're doing on the street, the money you're spending, where you're, who you're talking to, all those things. Again, that is literally tens of billions of data points and it's tools like this it's a chinese version of that that's doing the crunching of all this mm. 
and coming up with an evaluation of you, working out what nudges we need to change your behaviour because you're having a few too many beers or you're talking to the wrong people. And, and, and it, it's incredible what the technology can already do, but I wouldn't be trying to teach the population right now about GPT-3. I'd be no. more talking about the types of technology that are coming and the sort of things they'll be enabled, able to do. Sure. Well, we that, don't really need to know how GPT-3 no, works. No, no, no. I, 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 and I have no clue how it works. And I almost don't really want to know uh, how it works, to be honest with you. I, want to, I do want to ask you about healthcare in just a moment and wearable tech and how that can be used by the NHS and the kinds of questions that the NHS is asking of itself and of us um, about how this can be used. And I promise that Cold Logic's Bot, you'll get your question on in just a moment. Tom Swarbrick on LBC. Text 84850. Here's Cold Logic's Bot. Rohit. I don't know who this is. I hope I'm getting his name right. Werner Vinge predicted the singularity to occur between 2005 and 2030. Ray Kurzweil predicts 2045. Do you agree with either of these predictions, have a different one, or believe it's a fool's game to even guess? First of all, Rohit, what is the singularity? Uh, uh, everyone has a slightly different view of what the singularity is. For me, it's that point where we're effectively merging human brains with the internet, where we've got sufficiently powerful technology with AI that we can connect our brains and our thoughts to the internet and we can create, if you like, artificial human brains. Uh, and, and some people believe it's going to happen as early as 2030. Others say 2045. Others say never. Because the big issue there is whilst we can map the, the way the brain processes information and how our neurons fire, how it stores information, we're really not sure what consciousness is yet. Mm. So can we, can we capture your consciousness can we capture all the things that go into emotions? And so there's a question about whether we could really create that. The singularity in some respects would be great. Imagine you had an idea uh, and you just had it out there on the web. Someone decides to use that idea to create a new product. You could earn a revenue stream in the royalties for that. Jeez. But then people <laughs> can also see all your thoughts. Yeah. And we start to talk about connecting dreams or your partner says, they want to be in your dream. We move to the point where oh you no God. longer need to use your voice to communicate and your partner slaps you because you just had a stupid thought and they, you don't even need to say it. You're having an argument in silence. Uh, there are some very scary possibilities here and I don't think we're going to stop a lot of them because the technology is moving so fast. There are trillions of dollars literally being poured into this mm. by the big tech companies because they believe it's what's going to give them dominance, not just of the AI industry, but of all industries and of the global economy. So we have to understand the stakes that are at play here. Can I ask you then about Neuralink? Uh, this is Elon Musk's brain chip startup. They are now about to launch clinical trials in humans. Uh, and Musk has said that the technology will enable someone with paralysis to use a smartphone with their mind faster than someone using thumbs. They've already successfully implanted artificial intelligent microchips in the brains of macaque monkeys and a pig named Gertrude. Uh, and they're now recruiting for a clinical trial director. I wonder what you make of, of what Neuralink is attempting to achieve. So generally brain computer interfaces have a really powerful role to play 
in helping those with disabilities and helping people connect with technology uh, in all sorts of ways. And we've been doing this for, for quite some time again. Uh, the big thing about Neuralink isn't the technology of Neuralink, it's the mouth of Elon Musk. Uh, and he's an incredibly good marketeer. He's been talking about uh, having driverless vehicles for the last seven years. The technology still isn't there in a Tesla. So what Neuralink are doing is great, but they're still, I would say, at the toy end of yep. this technology. We're seeing much smarter stuff already being developed that allows people to communicate with devices, to use just the movement for their eyeballs, to control devices, talk control, all sorts of things. And that will be great if it's used in a way to support people and even so that we can start to maybe speed up the way in which you, you, you do your typing, if you like, you enter information. What's interesting is when it comes the other way when we start to be able to upload information to your yeah. brain. So now that, when that, you... That's proper matrix stuff. That's like when Neo gets plugged in and learns jiu-jitsu and karate in three seconds. Well, once we understand the pattern of how your brain forms a picture or how your brain forms an idea that you then communicate to the wheelchair or whatever, then we've understood what that information pattern looks like in your brain. So there's no reason why we can't theoretically at some point be able to upload similar sorts of patterns. So, yes, it's matrix-like, but then all the stuff we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes is, in a sense, matrix-like. Mm. And, again, we have to understand this, that this is no longer science fantasy. There are people working on this. Again, there are billions of dollars going into brain uploading. And uh, an awful lot of barking mad billionaires who want this, they want to upload their brain to the internet so it lives on in perpetuity. IBM have a model of Bobby Kennedy in software and you can converse with it and it can give you ideas and it can give you feedback on things that Bobby Kennedy never thought talked about because it's tapping into the ideas Bobby Kennedy had and the way he looked at problems. So we're in a really interesting space and, and, and again, I'll, I'll keep coming back to education as being the core here because unless we understand... We'll poo-poo these things. We'll pretend it's never going to happen mm. to us. We'll laugh at it, which is a great defense mechanism. But then we'll be very frightened when it comes. And, and, and the big thing is when we have that job shock, uh, which we will have, I think, we won't be prepared. We won't be investing enough in the new industries. We won't be investing enough in helping people create their own businesses. And we won't have invested enough in people's understanding to deal with this. And we won't have put in place a guaranteed basic income scheme to support yeah. people while they're retraining. Uh, so we know these things. We know these things are coming and we're just not prepared. That's, it's in, I, I was listening to a podcast with Musk, actually, where he, he said that alongside the massive technology changes that are either uh, uh, here or about to happen, you would need universal basic income because work would be largely um, voluntary. You know, if people really liked doing what they were doing, they could carry on doing it. But for everyone else, they're going to have to have some form of income because everything large, large areas of the economy will, will disappear because they'll be done by computers. Quickly from Richard here, Tom, fascinating discussion. A question for your guest. Isn't the most likely scenario going to be augmented intelligence rather than AI systems taking over human intelligence? Isn't the more likely scenario going to be machine human collaboration? 
so this was a term that was kind of invented by a lot of the consultants and technology companies a couple of years ago when they realized that pitching to com- pitching to the world that AI could replace all these people and save money wasn't really a good pitch. <laughs> I have yet to see a business case for companies doing AI or governments doing AI or applying it that talks about the augmentation benefits. The business cases are always predicated on cost savings, which are about taking humans out of the loop. Mm. Even if I augment the decision-making of, let's say, people writing legal contracts in financial services, I'm taking out a huge number of their colleagues to support the few that are left with that intelligence. I'm speeding up what they do so I don't need as many. I'm having them only focus on the most complex of cases. So we're still taking jobs out and calling it augmented intelligence. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's still a pig. Well, on that, yeah, just on that, that, that interaction, just very, very funny. We've only got a couple more minutes. Um, I heard the health secretary say the other day that one of the things that the NHS did during the pandemic to keep people out of hospital was monitor them remotely, check on their condition from afar using technology. I know that in the United States, there is wearable tech that means that hospitals can discharge people early, saving them money and the person the extra time in hospital because they wear a small strip on their chest, which sends information straight back to the hospital about how their heart is working and what have you. Um, Where are we on on? that kind of technology and its implementation in the NHS? There are a few projects trying to look at this and trying to work out how best we can use it. The ultimate goal, or one of the ultimate goals, will be, for example, we know that when we give people drugs, we take them in the wrong way. We give you a big lump of metformin if you're a diabetic. But what we really need to do is probably give you micro doses of it throughout the day. And depending on your physiology, we might micro dose you in different ways. Once we've got those sensors on your body, in your body, and we can monitor things like your blood sugar, your oxygen flow, uh, your heart rate, we can get a much better sense as to how to deliver that to you through some sort of inbuilt um, delivery device. So we can start to change that. We can work out, uh, monitor you continuously, and your AI can compare the pattern of your body uh, or your signals today versus yesterday. And today it might realise that they are abnormal and you're, you're going to have a heart attack in half an hour. And before it's even told you, it will have called the ambulance and alerted the hospital and then gently kind of advise you that this is the situation. Which shifts healthcare from being about treating the problem when it happens to anticipating what, them's, what the problem's going to be and stops it. Do you see then any difficulty in making an argument to people listening to this now that it would be in their interests to have something put under their skin or uh, implanted that can monitor their health for them to make sure that they can stave off anything that's coming their way? Well, we're already seeing some of those things, like in the insurance industry. If people use certain monitoring devices, they can have better insurance or more benefits, the same in their cars if they have the trackers and things. So we'll see that. We might end up doing it through the tax system where we will charge you less tax if you have these body-worn sensors because then you're going to be a lower cost to the health service. So we might incentivize you to do it in that kind of way. Uh, Others would say, well, that's penalizing people for not doing it. But we're we're in a very kind of complex and and, uh, nuanced world right now. And we need the big conversation. We need conversations like this with a much 
broader group of society with politicians who are willing to invest the time in understanding what this is because mm. of the seismic potential impact. Great to speak to you. Robert, thank you so much for your time this evening. Chief Executive of Fast Future, a company which looks at the development and future of technology and artificial intelligence. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.